Nancy Ortberg tells a story about how their family dog, a golden retriever named Baxter, would get covered with ticks. So after doing some research about ticks, here's what she discovered. She writes, they actually call ticks the overeaters of the insect world. Now, for those of you who are really technical in your biology, they're of the arachnoid family. They're not technically insects. But anyway, ticks have the disease of more, M-O-R-E. And when they latch on to a host, they cannot stop. Before a tick lands on its host, it's not very attractive. It's very flat. Then a tick drops onto its host because they do not have the capacity to jump. They drop from a bush or a thicket onto a host looking for a warm-blooded creature. Once they engorge themselves with the host's blood, they balloon up to seven to ten times their normal size. They're utterly transformed. I trust most of you have seen a, a tick on a dog or other animal. But the fascinating thing is that once a tick has bloated up, it automatically drops off the host and then it can't move. All the energy in its body is directed to digesting what it has just eaten. So for the next few hours, it's at the mercy of predators because it has eaten so much that it cannot move. Nancy Ortberg then makes this application. She says there can be a parallel with our spiritual lives or our lives in general. She said, I have to admit that when I consider what I learned about tick, there's a little bit of tick in me. I can sometimes be a picture of excess, not knowing when to say enough, not knowing when to stop, and always wanting what? More. Is that not true? Is that not true of us? We're never satisfied. We always want more. Maybe just a little bit more, maybe a lot more, but we want more. Now, if you don't think this is a problem for you, take a good look at your garage or maybe your basement or your storage shed, right? And consider it's, it's about this time of year, maybe a little bit earlier, but, but some are still ha having yard sales or garage sales as they are. And, and what is it that people are selling? They're selling some of their more, right? Some of the Excess. Now, some of it legitimately are things that they had a real need for at one time. Maybe you no longer have children at home, so you don't need those children's toys or other things or clothes or whatever. But a lot of times, too, it's that we're getting rid of those things that we just had to have. And now we don't need them. Or we've got a newer, bigger, shinier one. And so we want to get rid of last year's or two years ago's model or am I the only one <laughs> who has this problem more in light of that it raises a question do we really need to pray give us this day our daily bread when we have so much I mean most of the time except at the beginning of a pandemic uh, the panic of a pandemic, you go to the supermarket and you got all the bread you could want right there, right? Do we really need to pray for it? Well, I believe that it's not only necessary, but perhaps even more important that we pray for our daily bread today, although perhaps for different reasons. 
And as we'll see, praying for daily bread, as bread, that is for physical and material provision, goes hand in hand with the other two petitions that we see the Lord instructs us to have. Prayer for forgiveness or pardon and prayer for protection, spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So take your Bible and join me as we turn to Matthew chapter 6 again. And this time I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 and read through verse 15. The prayer, then a couple of verses of commentary that Jesus adds after it. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For yours, excuse me, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there are three prayers that we are to make, or three petitions in our prayer here for our needs. There is first we, the prayer for provision. We pray for provision, material and physical provision. Secondly, we pray for pardon, as I indicated, for forgiveness. But then thirdly, we pray for protection, spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's look first of all at this prayer for provision. Simply give us this day our daily bread. So what does it mean to pray for our daily bread in a day of so much abundance, in a day of so much excess even? Well, there are three words that we need to understand that we need to see as we think about this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. The first is substance. What does daily bread actually represent? Now, in Jesus' day, it was daily bread because the, day, the laborers were paid on a daily basis. They often didn't have excess. And if they didn't get paid, they wouldn't eat. And so they had to pray for daily. Give us this day, today, our daily bread. But in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, John Stott quotes Martin Luther. He says this, Luther had the wisdom to see that bread was a symbol for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife or husband, children, good government, and peace. And probably we should add by that bread, Jesus meant the necessities of life rather than the luxuries of life. Now, God often is gracious and gives us luxuries, but we're taught to pray for the necessities. So that's the substance. Bread really is symbolic. It represents all of our physical and material needs. But then the second word is the word supply or source, if you will. Who is the supply? Who is the support? This petition reminds us or teaches us 
that God is the giver. As James says, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. As I indicated, in Jesus' day, most laborers were paid on a daily basis. If they didn't get paid, they didn't eat, and pay was low so that sometimes, even if they did get paid, they still needed a little help to be able to survive, to be able to get by. And so give us this day our daily bread was not an empty phrase. It was full of desire, of need for the Lord to provide for them. And they understood that God was the provider, that if, they were, if their needs were going to get met, were going to be met, they needed to look to the Lord to do that. We need to remember that as well. And the third word is the word, again, it's the word supply, and that is the indication of the fact that God is faithful to give us what we need. He is the one who gives us every good and perfect gift. Just a few verses later, Jesus elaborates on this theme of looking to the Lord for our needs. And he begins in verse 19 by reminding us where to put our treasure, where to put our hope, if you will. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where, th- where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does this idea of the eye and light have to do with God providing our needs? How do you come upon things that you want? You see them, right? You see them. So it depends upon what you're seeing as to what you're desiring. That's, that's the connection there. But he goes on. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, unbelievers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's the reminder here? What is, what, what is the lesson here? It's that we are to look to the Lord and to trust in him. Now, God often uses means to provide our needs. For example, he, it is written that if a man will not work, he should not eat. We should be willing to work so that we can earn and not only have our needs met, but the scripture also teaches so that we can have something to share with others. So God uses means, yes, but he is the provider and we need to keep in mind that he will provide for our physical and material needs. We don't have to be anxious. We need to keep in mind that he is the source and that he is our supply. I'll never forget, I've shared this before, when I was in college, a poor college student. The car that I drew, drove most of my time in college, I probably wouldn't drive around the block today. I mean, it, it just was on its last wheels, not legs, but wheels, you know. It, and so I remember having to take a trip once, and I told a friend of mine, you know, I wish I had a credit card. So that if something happened, if I broke down, I had needed something on the road, you know, I'd, I'd be able to meet that need. And his reply to me just stung. He said, yeah, then you wouldn't have to trust God, would you? And I remember thinking, that's why I want it. So that I wouldn't have to be dependent on God's provision. Now, don't hear me saying that if you have a credit card, you're not trusting God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, my confidence, where, what I was looking to was the ability to use credit in a time of need. And yet God had always provided my needs without credit, and he would continue to do so. The question is, where am I looking? Who am I trusting to provide not my greeds, but my needs, my genuine needs? The second petition is a petition or a prayer for pardon. Again, for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, Luke says trespasses, and even later in this passage, Jesus talks about forgiving others their trespasses. They are interchangeable words. But the word debt really pictures the idea that, that we have an obligation, that we owe God something. We, we owe obedience to him that we have failed to, to pay. So we need forgiveness. We want forgiveness. Don't you want forgiveness from God? You're aware that you are a sinner, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and even aside, or in a, maybe I should say in addition to God's revelation of this in his word, we know in our hearts that we have fallen short and we continue to fall short. Now, if you've never come to the place in your life where you recognize and acknowledge that you indeed are a sinner with a sin debt that you can never repay, that your sin has separated you from God, from a personal, loving, father, fatherly relationship with relationship with him if you've not come to that place and turned from that sin repented of being the boss the ruler of your life and put your faith in Christ as your savior and lord do that you can do that right now wherever you are just say lord jesus 
I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a rebel against your righteous rule in my life. And I confess that and I repent of that. I turn from that. Help me. Help me to put my trust in you and you alone to save me from my sin. I receive you as Savior and Lord, boss of my life. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. But even as Christians, we still need forgiveness. We still fall short on a regular basis. It was to Christians that the Apostle John wrote these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we are regularly in need of forgiveness. Not that we lose our salvation, not that sin causes us to be lost or unsaved again, but we need to be in intimate fellowship with the Lord. And when we sin, that fellowship is disrupted. It's affected. We have guilt, and it's a hindrance to walking in fellowship and obedience to the Lord. So we need to pray, forgive us, forgive me, my debts, my sins. And we need to be specific. We need to name them. But notice what Jesus adds. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he even adds this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others of trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, what's that about? I thought salvation was by grace through faith. I thought it was unconditional. I didn't think it was, you know, something we earned by our forgiving others. Well, that's right. That's absolutely right. We don't earn forgiveness by forgiving others. But what we do is we demonstrate our nature. We demonstrate whether or not we truly have been born again, whether truly we have experienced that forgiveness of the Lord. You see, our problem with forgiving others is that we really don't fully understand how heinous, how awful our sin is. It's really treason against the God who created us, who loves us, and who invites us to trust and submit to him for our good. You know what treason is? Dictionary.com defines treason as the offense of acting to overthrow one's government or to harm or kill its sovereign. Now, we absolutely cannot harm God. We cannot kill God. However, When we sin, we are saying, in effect, we don't want you to rule over us. We are seeking to overthrow God's reign in our lives. We don't want to submit to you. We want to do it our way. I did it my way. And my way is often the sinful way. If we persist in refusing to submit to God's reign in our lives, eventually he'll give us 
what we want. He'll let us go on aside, apart from him for eternity. Eternally cut off from him. But since he is the source of all true love and grace and goodness, it means hell for all eternity. God's wrath, God's righteous judgment. You see, we need to understand how great our debt is, our sin debt. Jesus gives us a glimpse of that. If you still have your Bible, turn a little bit further into Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us um, a story, a parable, if you will, as a result of a question by Peter. In Matthew 18, beginning verse 21, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a lot. It really is. You let somebody offend you, hurt you seven times, and see how willing you are to forgive them. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In another place, it says 70 times seven. In any case, it's a lot. And it's not just 77 and then I'm done. All right, as if you could get, get to that. It's as many times as necessary. And then he adds this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants, servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, "You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you?" And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, just a word about the comparison here. A denarii was equal to one day's wage for a laborer, all right? So 100 denarii was a lot of money, but not something that was insurmountable. It could have been paid back back eventually but 10,000 talents would have taken taken hundreds if not thousands of lifetimes to repay impossible right the point is our debt to God far far infinitely exceeds anyone's debt to us who may have offended us, who may have hurt us, 
who may have sinned against us. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. What does that mean? Let me just share a few statements about, from others about what forgiveness looks like. Alexander de Young writes this, To forgive someone involves three things. First, it means to forego the right of striking back. One rejects the urge to repay gossip with gossip and a bad turn with a worse turn. Second, it means replacing the feeling of resentment and anger with goodwill. A love which seeks the other's welfare, not harm. Third, it means the forgiving person takes concrete steps to restore good relations. So it's it's far more than just, oh, let bygones be bygones, right? It's actively pursuing, restoring the relationship. Ken Chafin says this, Forgiveness isn't pretending nothing has happened or pretending that what happened didn't hurt. It isn't even forgetting it completely, and it isn't going back and starting over as though it had never happened. Instead, forgiveness is refusing to let anything permanently destroy the relationship. There's a place for saying, I'm sorry. There's a place for assuring the other person that all is forgiven. But the goal of both is to rebuild the relationship. One of the amazing things about a healthy beginning again is that the relationship is often stronger than it was before. And then evangelist Luis Palau shares this story. Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her years before. But she acted as if she had never heard of the incident. Don't you remember it? Her friend asked. No, came Barton's reply. I distinctly remember forgetting it. (laughs) And that's what we need to do actively, distinctly forgetting Remembering to forget it. Forgiving others is evidence that we have experienced God's forgiveness for ourselves. Our Heavenly Father is a God who makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, who sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He is also the God who is rich in mercy, who justifies the ungodly, and who for our sake made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God has done for us, and we are called to be like him. The third petition, in addition addition to praying for provision and for pardon, is a petition for protection, spiritual protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does it seem odd that we would have to pray, lead us not into temptation? I mean, would God do that? Would God ever lead us? Do we need to ask God, Lord, don't lead me into temptation. Don't tempt me to sin. Especially since James says in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Well, according to New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, this phrase, lead us not into temptation, is what is called a litotese, which means it's an understatement or a way of, of expressing a positive with a negative 
statement. Let me give you an example. Someone offers you a brownie, all right? Or a piece of cherry pie. And you take it and you eat it and you say, man, that's not half bad. What did you mean? Did you mean that's not bad? No, you meant that is really good, right? But we, we do that kind of thing. Or maybe you come home from a long day's work on your feet. Your feet are tired and sore and, you, and your spouse says to you, what can I get for you, for you? Can I do anything for you? And you say, well, you know what? I wouldn't mind a foot rub. Now, you don't mean you wouldn't mind. You mean that would be a really good thing to have. Now, whether or not you're going to get it is a subject for another day. But we do things like that. We say things like this all the time. We express something positive in an understatement, kind of in in a negative way. Deliver us from, excuse me, lead us not into temptation is that kind of phrase. In other words, Lord, make sure... As much as possible, you deliver us from temptation. And he adds, deliver us, but deliver us from evil, or some translations say from the evil one, that is from Satan. There are a thousand, if not more, ways we need to be delivered, protected from evil. Now, before we get into maybe some specifics of how that is, I want to say that we should be very grateful and should thank God on a regular basis that where we live, in the day and time in which we live, there is one temptation, one experience that we don't have, and that is the fear of being physically persecuted, of actually laying our neck on the line for our faith. Now, I'm not saying being a Christian doesn't cost you. I'm not saying that in our society that the standing for truth and righteousness will not cost you. It often will, but it will not cost you your life. It will not cost you to be tortured or beaten. And I want to point out that when Jesus teaches us to pray, remember what I said in the very first sermon about the corporate nature of this? We pray to our father and not just my father and we ask lord would you forgive us our debts would you provide our daily bread and would you deliver us deliver us from evil from the evil one i bring this up because it's been brought to my attention that tomorrow is the day of the martyr uh, for according to voice of the martyrs ministry and we need to remember that there are brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world in many nations who are tempted to forsake the faith because of real danger, physical danger to their lives. Let's remember that when we pray for ourselves to be protected, that we pray for them. And that we pray for their perseverance, that we pray that God would use their example to others to bring them to faith in Christ. But while we may not be in danger of physical persecution, it doesn't mean, obviously, that we're not in danger. There is danger. There's spiritual danger, both from within, 
and from without, inside us and outside of us. The most dangerous temptations are the ones that are in accordance with our own desires, right? James writes in James 1, 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You see, when the evil one or when the world comes and presents a sinful temptation, it often finds an ally, a willing ally in our own hearts, in our own lives. We need to use every means possible. We need to be in the word. We're not going to take time to read it, but we could go back just a couple of chapters from Matthew 6, Matthew 4, where Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and how Jesus was tempted on three occasions. These are just representative. It's not exhaustive. But in each case, what did Jesus do to defeat the temptation of Satan? He quoted God's word. And God's word is a powerful instrument, a powerful tool. When Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about, writes about the, the armor of God, to pull on the whole armor of God, he finishes it up with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer. These working together help us to resist sinful temptations of whatever nature be in the word regularly consistently continually also don't forsake these opportunities whether you can do it in person or you can just do it online and encourage one another when we're together you know, we love to catch up. We love to talk about 101 different things, family, not so much sports these days, not much going on, but all kinds of things. But do we talk about God's work in our lives? Do we encourage one another? Do we share with one another? You know, I, I'm struggling in this area. Would you pray for me? Use these means that God has provided for us to say no to the evil one, no to sinful temptation, and yes to God. John Ortberg tells the following story in his book, The Me I Want to Be. He writes this. I have to get back to it. Recently, my wife and I went fly fishing for the first time. Our guys told us that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. They said that to a fish, life is about the maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure, expenditure of energy. I don't think that just applies to fish. But anyway, to a fish, life is see a fly, want a fly, eat a fly. A rainbow trout never really reflects on where his life is headed. A girl carp rarely says to a boy carp, I don't feel you're as committed to our relationship as I am. I wonder, do you love me for me or just for my body? The fish are just a collection of appetites. A fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. While we were on the water, I was struck by how dumb the fish are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing. 
It's just a lure. You'll think it will feed you, but it won't. It'll trap you. If you were to look closely, fish, you would see the hook. You'd know once you were hooked that it's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. You'd think fish would wise up and notice the hook or see the line. You'd think fish would look all around at their fish friends who go for a lure and fly off into space and never return. But they don't. It's ironic. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. Aren't you glad we're smarter? Are we? Why aren't we smarter? Why do we accept the world's lure or Satan's lure? Why do we get reeled in? I am just a poor boy, though my story seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jests. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. A few of you may recognize those words as the first few lines of a song by Simon and Garfunkel back in the 60s called The Boxer. The song's about a young man's struggle with poverty and loneliness in New York City, but what really caught my attention, I, I heard the song again for the first time recently, and what caught my attention was those opening lines. I have squandered my resistance. That is, I've given in to temptation for a pocket full of mumbles such as promises. In other words, I was offered these things, but it's not real. All lies and jest. Then why did he give in? Here's the key. Still, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's the key. That's why we give in. Because when temptation comes, we hear or we see or we feel what we want and we disregard the rest. There is a great temptation for us to hear what we want to hear, see what we want to see or believe what we want to believe and just disregard anything that doesn't sound good or look good or feel good. I have no idea if Paul Simon intended this, but he really sums up temptation and sin. In fact, he, he describes the fall. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Oh, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he, had, and he ate. You will not surely die. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles. Such are promises. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, all lies and jest. Still, 
Uh, not really just in that case. Still a man hears or a woman hears what she wants to hear and disregards the rest. It was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desired to make one wise. I said at the beginning of the sermon that these three prayers, these petitions go hand in hand. In fact, they all have to do with temptation and our need to be delivered from evil. There is the evil of trusting things or possessions or anything other than the Lord to meet our needs and failing to trust God that he will do so. There is the evil of either thinking we don't need forgiveness or more like the evil of withholding forgiveness from others when we are commanded to do so. And of course, there is the temptation, the evil of listening to the lying promises, the temptations that come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So how do we resist these sinful temptations and live trusting the Lord, obeying the Lord? Well, we pray. We pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Meet our needs, Lord. Forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us, deliver us from evil. We pray in accordance with God's will revealed in his word. So let's pray. Would you bow with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, we do want to live in relationship with you, trusting you, honoring you, obeying you, experiencing intimate fellowship with you, demonstrating to a watching world the difference that Christ makes in people who are just like them, sinners separated from you because of our sin and yet delivered from the penalty of our sin through the death and resurrection of Christ, being delivered from the power of sin through your word and by your spirit. And someday, Lord, delivered even from the very presence of sin. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, not to give in to the temptations, to trust anyone or anything other than you to meet our needs. Lord, help us not to withhold forgiveness, genuine gracious, merciful forgiveness from others, Lord, even those who have done perhaps the worst to us. Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from temptation, from the evil one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.